The nature of labor, though, is fundamentally different today than it was previously. And that's where this change in leadership, I think, is so critical. And it goes to this idea that leadership needs to happen at every level of an organization. Traditional businesses are hierarchical. And the assumption is, by virtue of grade and hierarchy, the person above is brighter than the person below and has more authority. The reality of life, though, is that we are recruiting into our organization and everybody's the same. People who are brighter, who have better and more diverse skills than the people who came in in the previous generation or the generation before that. And so the idea that you would take the highly talented, highly digitally literate people who are coming out of school, university and other work environments and say to them, by the way, you have to wait until you're old and gray, pale and stale before you get to make any decisions. It just makes no sense whatsoever. Therefore, what you need to do is you organize around the challenge or the opportunity, not around the organizational structure. This is the Digital Irish Podcast, a show about Irish innovation with entrepreneurs, corporate innovators, and global leaders. This show is brought to you by the Digital Irish Network, with the mission to promote both Irish innovation and Irish innovators globally. I'm Patrick McAndrew, and on today's episode, I'm speaking with Ronan Dunn, who is the CEO of Verizon Wireless, which is the largest mobile network in the US. Although most of our guests on this podcast are founders and tech entrepreneurs, we also have some incredible corporate innovators who are making an impact around the world. And Ronan Dunn, who's today's guest, is exactly that. He's a corporate innovator who is making a global impact. Ronan was the longest serving CEO in British telecommunications history, where he was the CEO of O2 for 15 years. Now he is currently the CEO of Verizon Wireless, which is the largest mobile network in the US. And sometimes, when leaders reach positions at such established companies, their capacity to be open and forthcoming can be quite limited. But that's definitely not the case with Ronan. We got to have a very honest and wide-ranging conversation where we talked about appreciating the moment that you were living in right now. Ronan shared his management style, which is less about hierarchies and more about matching talent with opportunities. We also discussed what is actually involved in the role of the CEO, and Ronan shared an interesting transformation that he had after his first six months as the head of O2. This was an extremely thought-provoking conversation, and I found some of Ronan's ideas on leadership very enlightening and progressive in comparison to what we often hear from CEOs of large corporations. But before we hear from Ronan Dunn, the CEO, let's get to know Ronan's journey, which began in Goatstown in Dublin, where he lived with his parents and two older brothers. My mum, uh, primary school teacher, uh, my dad uh, worked his entire working life for one company, uh, he worked uh, for Shell and spent literally 45 years working for the one uh, company. And they sent him to school at night, gave him opportunity. My parents were the first in their families and the first generation to have any sort of either formal or informal third level type uh, type education. Um, and, you know, with mum uh, going out to work every single day, we also had a very disciplined household. So three boys. My mum being a school teacher, she was very clever. She managed to be a school teacher in a boys' national school in Kilmacud. So she brought us to school, i.e., to work every day for like seven years. How clever is uh, how clever is that? Uh, and that was, you know, my upbringing was I played Gaelic football for Kilmacud Croaks. We won the Dublin Championships. We played in the finals in Croke Park in like 1970 or 71 or something like that. So I was a kid, enjoyed sport, just a kind of joiner-upper enthusiastic. Uh, and in some respects, that little 15-year-old curious kid is, is kind of what defines me still. Something I'd like to explore on this actually is, you know, a common thread of which we've seen in the podcast is that some people were brought to the table, the dinner table, as adults uh, when they were kids. You know, we, we have seen that in different households where some people are, are, some parents try to preserve the innocence of their children and maybe the, the childhood yes. naivety of it. Other parents will try and bring them to the table and kind of indoctrinate them in what happens in mature life and, and kind of their mature world. Was that something that you had when you were growing up? Well, I, the way I would describe it was with three boys in the family and all reasonably bright and 
and interesting. There was a lot of fascinating uh, conversation. And so my parents were very comfortable. My mom was a school teacher, my dad working for a big international company, although working in the domestic arm of it in Ireland. Um, the outside was brought in all the time. So they were very open. While in many respects, the values in the household would have been seen as very traditional, in a, and I mean that in a very positive sense, there was still this absolutely natural instinct to bring the outside in, to, to you know, put the spotlight on what was going on around us and be part of, of that narrative and conversation. And what that built in me was this innate curiosity. I'm genuinely the world's most fascinated person. Not fascinating, but fascinated. I'm interested in everything. And I continue to be literally at the age of 56. I'm as curious now as I was. And if there was one thing out of that early phase of discovery, I was just fascinated by that at that young age. And that has stayed with me. And it's probably, if you were to mark a single thread that goes through not just my career, but my life, it's uh, Ronan's always been interested. I'm almost inclined to lean in and tell me, that's amazing. I didn't know about that. Tell me more. Yeah. You know, that, so that's that's kind of me, fifteen year old curious kid. But it's it's a uh, it's funny you say that because it's the least likely trait of a chartered accountant is curiosity. Well, <laughs> well you know, if we're if we're going there, I'm an accidental uh, accountant, a very proud uh, chartered accountant, and I think the chartered accountancy body and the profession is an exceptional one for the point of view of setting people up for, for business. But, you know, the little anecdote there is uh, I did my leaving cert in 1981, as we mentioned. But um, in 1981, there was an examiner strike. So we all ended up at the end of the summer still completely uh, unaware of whether or not we had a place at university because the, uh, the leaving cert hadn't been, uh, they hadn't marked the exams. So I found myself literally in the week that I was intending and expecting to start a law degree in UCD, still unclear what was happening. And happenstance, fate, you know, you can describe lots of things, but the sort of joining the dots, the, the president of the past pupils union in Blackrock College that year was a gentleman called Terry O'Rourke. And Terry was the managing partner of Tushros in Dublin. And Terry rang uh, the dean of the sixth year and said, you'll have a whole load of the boys sitting around, not sure what's happening to them. We've got three or four open places for people to study accountancy, and we're happy to take them in despite the fact that they haven't got their uh, results, et cetera, and put them through the kind of school leaver route. So cut a long story short, two days later, instead of embarking on my uh, law career, I was uh, I was starting a chartered accountancy uh, career, so that's that's how I ended up being an accountant. What were you like back then when you started out in your career? Were you like were you extremely zealous in in wanting to get out and uh, see opportunities? I was probably a pain in the backside in the sense that, and you know, it's for others to comment, but it's all very well being excited, enthusiastic, joiner upper. But not everybody wants somebody who's on 110% on the Duracell Bunny energy chart every single day. And, and I was that. I was, I was kind of excited about stuff, even when there was no reason to be excited about, about stuff. So I, in that regard, I think people would say probably the person they know now is the same person that they knew then, or at least I'd, I'd like to think. But my enthusiasm was probably so unbridled that sometimes uh, it was uh, it was wearing on uh, on people. I read an article that you wrote about tips to your 22-year-old self, and you talked about yeah. you know really uh, acknowledging and appreciating and enjoying being 22. Um, I get that, you know, where you're in a moment, but you feel like this is just like a transitory period to get to that place. Were you yeah. very driven like to where you wanted to arrive to even at that age? The interesting thing is, um, and I suppose people would always say this is, I've worked hard um, all my life, but every day in every job I've had, honestly, I've loved and I've had fun. So in that regard of, you know, sort of ambitious or driven or whatever else is, Honestly, in my case, it was never a chore. It was never a, you know what, I have to climb 14 hills before I can see the sunlight. There was sun at the top of every small incline, and I enjoyed it. And that idea of my 22-year-old my self is, you know, 
Uh, my background is kind of untraditional in the sense that I left school and went and I did the uh, school living entry route for accountancy. Did some full-time accounting studying, but not the classic, did my primary degree in English or history or whatever it was, and then, and then switched. And, and at that time, when I reflected back, while I wouldn't change anything, the thing I observed was I was qualified as a chartered accountant at 22. I knew the price of everything and the value of absolutely nothing. I was qualified in all but life. Uh, and so this idea of we're rushing and rushing and rushing, you know, a, 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 a female child born today into a middle class uh, household with uh, in either London or Dublin has a life expectancy of 100 why would you be chasing your tail when you're 18 or 19 or 20 saying, I have to get to here, I have to get to here? You have your whole life ahead of you and you actually have a lifespan which is longer than you realize. So that idea of you know, stop and smell the roses, most people take too long to realize it and wish they'd spent time. And if there's one thing I'd call out that I did, and my daughter will catch me when she, when she uh, listens to this is, I made the decision at the beginning, I'm blessed we have one child, Elaine and myself, Charlotte, who uh, <clears throat> works in, in London these days, she's 26, but she was a highly accomplished hockey player and played at sort of regional and national levels uh, in England for six or eight years when we were living there. I made a commitment in that sense of smell the roses. I took time off for every competitive match she played for her entire career, bar one. She'll remind me of the one. She tells me exactly which one it was, and I know which it was, which was the national finals in the, in the, in the UK. But that's an example for me of I think I see so many parents, you know, mothers and fathers, and they say, you know what, I wish I was around for the kids uh, a bit more at that time. When Charlotte got to secondary school level, uh, Elaine decided then to stop working. She's in a chartered accountant as well, and we met in, in the Tushras in Dublin. But she said, you know what? These years, those sort of teenage years, are going to be the best years of my life because they'll be the best years of her life. And so took the decision to come out of the workplace and spend that time. So I do think not just family, although I'm very much a family, I'm still blessed to have my parents at, at the ripe age of, of, uh, of 91, as well as my two, two brothers. But I think that sense of enjoy every moment and invest. If you put in, it's amazing what you get out. Don't, don't be a kind of fellow traveler. Don't be a passive passenger. Every day is important. And honestly, every day is fun. It is. It is. And it, it is. It is truly it is truly down to the perspective of what you take on it. To bring you forward a few years after qualifying as a chartered accountant, Ronan went to London and worked with the French bank BNP Paribas until the early 90s. He then left banking to move into the corporate world and took up some head of finance roles until he became the CFO of O2 in 2005. And that's when my career kind of changed because actually that opportunity not only did it give me the finance opportunity but it also created the environment in which one or two people identified truthfully before I did that maybe my skill set was that I should be more a general manager than just a finance manager what do you think gave them that impression that that was that was that was a worthwhile investment obviously it was but what, what what do you think drew them to think that that might be your two follow-up podcasts, but uh, <laughs> the thing for me was, and, and a lot of people are like this, you know, I'm, I've, I've taken what on reflection may look like pretty sizable risks over the years in, in my career, and I wouldn't disagree with that characterization, but people tend to be a bit traditional in the assumptions of where their careers uh, will take them. So if you're a chartered accountant and you work in industry, not in practice, and you just ask a random sample of a thousand, what's the pinnacle of career for you? The answer would be the finance director of a publicly listed company. That's what they'd say. So not surprisingly, I fell into the, you know, the 900 and whatever of the thousand who thought that was probably the route in my career. And don't misunderstand me, massively, uh, uh, you know, attractive thing. And, and from a career ambition, a wholly worthy uh, career ambition. So that was kind of the course I was on. And then my boss, Matthew in the UK, <clears throat> gave me regulatory, legal, procurement uh, as additional things. 
And after about six months, he came to me and said, what about taking on HR? So I said to him, can we book 15 minutes and, and have a chat? And he said, yeah, of course. So I said, look, I've been thinking about this, Matthew, and maybe I'm missing the point is, but I now think I'm doing two and a half, maybe even three jobs, and I'm still getting paid what I was being paid six months ago. So, you know, if I'm going to take on more responsibility, is there not a, you know, opportunity for, uh, you know, a recut on the pay and ration sort of thing? And he said, you know what, I never thought of that, but of course I'll think about that, but you've really missed the point. And I said, how do you mean? He said, I'm not putting extra work on you because I think it's, you know, I, I can get, you know, cheap labor out of you. He said, I'm stretching you to see whether or not you are what I think you are is my successor. And it genuinely, for somebody who others would say, yeah, ambitious, marked out his career, has done a lot, it hadn't really occurred to me uh, at that stage. And so I'm, you know, a highly influential, if I say so myself, senior finance person in a big UK uh, business. But I had kind of the blinkers on and thought, yeah, next job is either the group job or leave and go and be a public company CFO. So he and the chairman, Peter at the time, started to invest in me and history records six months later, I became the, uh, I became the CEO. How did that feel? Because there was, there was the parts of yourself which you had valued and you had, had validated for the type of leader that you were and the type of work that you could do. And now there was a whole different stream that was being introduced. And it was, a, it was an expansion of you. It was an expansion of what was going to be expected of you. How did that feel? Because, I, you know, people go through this in small circumstances. I'm sure it's a feeling which you had experienced before, but probably not to this magnitude of the responsibility that you were going to have to take on. So for the first time in my career, um, I thought to myself is, boy, have you bitten off more than you can chew? Or are you out of your depth? And the first few months when I was in the job, you know, your first reaction when somebody offers you a job and promotes you is to say, thank you, and just make sure they don't change their mind before you've, uh, you know, signed the paper. Uh, but then you come back and think, wow, so, you know, how do I do this? <clears throat> and so the transition was pretty quick. I knew in October, I took over on the 1st of January, uh, officially. And for the first three or four months, I'll be honest, I was rubbish. I was terrible. Uh, and the reason I was, was I spent a lot of that time trying to imagine how other people would have done the job. Because I had this framing which says, your experience is you were a CFO. Now what you need to do is try and find frames and experiences from other people to help you to learn to be a CEO. And about, literally about 90 days in, I sat in my office one day, just on my own, and I had as close to a spiritual moment as <clears throat> I probably uh, ever had in, in the work environment. That's not a reflection on spiritual uh, in the broader sense. But I literally, I was becalmed in my office, and it suddenly dawned on me, like this, this revelation is, I had, at that stage, 25 years of pretty good experience across a range of industries, range of businesses, range of organizations, range of cultures. And for the first time in my career, I denied myself access to the 25 years of experience and thought that somebody else's experience would be more relevant. And of course, that was nonsense. So what that kind of moment made me realize is, if you're going to be a, a CEO, successful or otherwise, the only way you're going to do it is be, by being yourself, in which case, Every bit of experience you've ever had is relevant because it's experience that's about you and how you respond in situations. And pretty much from that day on, I started the journey to being a decent uh, uh, CEO and a lot more comfortable in my skin. Is that when you became much more comfortable with when you didn't know things, you didn't know things? And it was it was about finding the solution. Yeah, yeah so, so great question. Um, I wouldn't say it was exactly the same time, but it was in that same journey. There's a couple of things about being a CEO or the boss in whatever way it is, is that people talk about. The first thing is, it is lonely. There's no question about it because you, you are set apart. Whether you choose to behave that way or not, you are set apart by others because you're the boss. And it does get lonely. Um, and so that's the first thing. But acknowledging that is important. Then the second thing, which is the 
the hidden secret that not every CEO tells you, but it's so important is nobody ever asks you a question that they know the answer to. Because if you're working in the company, you don't go to the CEO and, they, uh, and, and say to him, you know, what do you think about such and such when you know the answer? Because what you do is you go to him and say, I have this great idea. We're going to turn left instead of right. I'm the guy who runs it. I'm a great. Actually, what happens is they come and say, boss, what would you think about such and such? I'm not sure. And the reason they come is because they don't know the answer. So the little secret that no CEO tells you is if they don't know the answer, you don't have to know the answer either. And so really, you only get asked questions that there isn't really a black and white answer to in most cases, because my definition of what a CEO does is you manage uncertainty. You manage the environment in which there aren't binary outcomes and binary answers. And, and that's what a CEO does. But as soon as you realize that's the job spec, then you take the pressure off yourself to imagine that you have to know the answer to questions that there isn't an answer to. And you focus on so in an environment of uncertainty, what's the best approach to take to manage risk, to manage certain uncertainty, but also to manage optionality? Uh, and that's much more fun than guessing whether you're right or wrong all the time. I really want to go into the specifics of your time there, but I'm just curious kind of as the overarching thing of the, the personal engagement of it. What, what about the, the, the demands? You know, there's huge demands in your attention, huge demands on your input. When you came in there first, I know you mentioned after kind of the, the first 90 days, uh, was, there, was there a change in how you managed that? A, like change in how you managed, how you, how you regulated your attention and your inputs? So maybe set a little bit of uh, context, one a personal context and one in an environmental context. I took over my first CEO job on the 1st of January, 2008. Uh, and just as a reminder to people, the world went into the uh, biggest economic turndown in history. Uh, bigger in many data points than even the you know Wall Street crash in 29, et cetera. So not a great time to, to uh, take over. So a lot of external <clears throat> factors to consider. But the key thing, and it was part of the, the, the leadership principles that over years I've kind of informally built in my mind. And one of the earliest ones is it's not what you do, it's what you make happen. So I think the CEO is at the pinnacle of that hierarchy. And therefore, that realization is that actually, if you think your job is doing stuff, you've, you've, you've misunderstood. What you need to do is orchestrate the doing of things through influencing, through setting context, through uh, defining the parameters in which things can operate. And then very critically, spending your time reinforcing the wherewithal of the people in the organization to get on and do the stuff that needs to be done to deliver on the corporate's purpose. Um, and that's a very different job. So what I tend to focus on is eliminating anything in my schedule where somebody else could be doing it and try to focus on the things that only the CEO can do. And the second thing that I think is really important inside organizations is if people are very focused on getting things done, you have to make sure from the top that you create an environment, an aperture for letting the outside in. Because organizations can very, very quickly get so focused that they lose the context of the environment in which they're operating, the perimeter in which they're, they're operating. So I saw my job increasingly as the person to um, <clears throat> amplify the activity of others and then bring the outside in so that we were refreshing the context, almost like swapping out the, the air all the time so it was freshened all the time. And the day I took over as CEO in, uh, formally on the 1st of January 2008, and we came back in from the bank holiday maybe on the 2nd or the 3rd, <clears throat> and I did a town hall in the office in Slough. And I said, my job uh, is to be chief cheerleader and chief storyteller on behalf of the organization. And my responsibility is to make each one of you the success you deserve to be. And I've tried pretty much through my entire CEO uh, career in the last you know, 15 years to largely focus down on those two aspects. Am I cheerleading uh, and storytelling on behalf of the organization because it's such a valuable role if the CEO is comfortable to play it? 
And am I focusing on making sure that the people around me have what they need to be the success they deserve to be? And I think if you play those two roles, then I think you liberate yourself, A, to do what you do uh, best, uh, but B, you also create an environment in which you clearly define the role of the CEO and create space for others around you to take up the space for them to develop as leaders as well. Fascinating, because it's, it's, it's a very different you know, perspective on it, because we, the place of the CEO is, is something that's spoken of a lot. It is, but also within that, and, and look, it's easy on, <clears throat> on reflection uh, to, to see this, but one of the things that I've realized is that the biggest change that's happening in our environment, in our society overall, is the change in the nature of the role of labor. The nature of labor, though, is fundamentally different today than it was previously. And that's where this change in leadership, I think, is so critical. And it goes to this idea that leadership needs to happen at every level of an organization. Traditional uh, businesses are hierarchical. And the assumption is, by virtue of grade and hierarchy, the person above is brighter than the person below and has more authority. The reality of life, though, is that we are recruiting into our organization and everybody's the same. People who are brighter, who have better and more diverse skills than the people who came in in the previous generation or the generation before that. And so the idea that you would take the highly talented, highly digitally literate people who are coming out of school, university and other work environments and say to them, by the way, you have to wait until you're um, old and gray pale and stale before you get to make any decisions. It just makes no sense whatsoever. Therefore, what you need to do is you organize around the challenge or the opportunity, not around the organizational structure. If you do that, then in every situation, what you do is you bring the best people relevant to the circumstances together. And the hierarchy is a natural one of the nature of the contribution that people can make. And that can mean, quite literally, The last person into the organization is the person best qualified to lead and coordinate the response to a particular situation. I think if leaders at the top of the organization don't realize that, then it's almost like you're running an analog business in a digital world. And I don't mean that in the sense of digital transformation, but you're actually trying to use an old operating model. You know, I'm using, you know, iOS 6 on my, you know, iPhone 11. Well, guess what? It may work, but it's not nearly as effective as getting iOS 14 that just came out in BT yesterday and popping that on my uh, on my phone. So that, for me, is one of the big fundamentals. And a lot of the people who are occupying the space are actually narrating uh, a role and a context that's no longer relevant. Okay, uh, this great, great, great topic of conversation. I want to, I want to hit you with this one now, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. So there was a book written in the '70s called "The Rise of the Meritocracy," and it was uh, the idea that merit is talent plus effort equals, you know, merit where you mer- where you are merited to be in society. And the argument that was put forth, I cannot, I think I cannot remember the philosopher's name right now, but the argument was put forth was that the the systems that were in place allowed the rise of the meritocracy. But, you know, to be merited to be in these roles, you had to come from certain privileges. Like you had to get into certain schools, you had to have access to certain levels of education. You had to tick the right boxes to get into the right positions. And that it would be the new dawn of the aristocracy, because these people would not necessarily be the most intelligent people and the best equipped people for their roles, but on the basis points of the system, they had the most merit to be there. And um, the point that was made was that this was written in the 70s, that by 2030, by late 2020s, early 2030s, we would see the downfall of leadership because all these people in all these roles, their main interest is just to contain their type of people within it that got there through merit, which I'm kind of hearing a similar, I know this is, you know, a real conjecture, but a similar kind of concept which you put forward there that it needs to be broken down, that it's not just based on merit, but it's based on, it's based on core talents and and immediate opportunities. Yeah. So look, um, this is a, a roundabout way of answering the specific question. If I was to identify it as a core philosophy, I would say my philosophy is that talent is broadly distributed, but opportunity is not. And that you can take the opportunity element and you can either 
frame it in the context of socioeconomic. You can uh, define it in the context of social justice that we have in our uh, conversation in our community and society today. Or you can define it in the traditional hierarchical structure of the aristocracy. And, and But in each of those cases, what you're really challenging yourself is that the more effectively you or society or community matches talent to opportunity, the more value add in the broader sense of value add that you create. You create option, you create value, you create outcomes. So, so my, my approach, whether you call it meritocracy or yeah. anything else, has, has always been around the, the, the philosophy that in life there are a lot of scarce resources. Uh, I've been an environmentalist in inverted commas all my life before I even knew what it was. And, and I've gone on record in saying, I don't care about the science because you end up having some conversations about is the polar ice cap melting at you know two feet per month or one foot per month? Does it matter? If the world is taking scarce resources and using them in a way that's inefficient, that's just simply wrong. It's stupid. Not even just because of a narrow ecological sense. Why would you waste a scarce resource? So if talent is out there and you're not harnessing that talent and you're not giving voice to that talent, and it's the same philosophy for me that supports social justice or other things like, like that, it's a common and consistent frame. And when you take it into the business environment, it's amazing how good the boss looks when he gets the best out of the people that's around them. So if it's enlightened self-interest, I don't mind that at all. The one thing I would say to the philosophy of the 70s that's an important contextual point is many of those structures and hierarchies uh, were created with one key principle, which was that the control of information was reserved to a subgroup. And that was an essential element about how those hierarchies and structures worked. The truth is at its best, and it's not perfect, the one thing that's happened in the last 15, 20 years has been we've got as close to democratizing access to information as society ever has. This idea of information is power, is largely broken down. So I think the juxtaposition of the two, making sure that there is a democratization of access to information, and then this idea of then match talent to opportunity, those two drivers for me are critical. And how... How open are people in leadership roles? Like you're at Verizon now. We're kind of jumping through things, but I think this is now we've now we've opened up the can, so it's going to be a fluid chat. But uh, <laughs> you're you're at Verizon now, which is a huge organization. You mentioned um, 120,000 employees. Did you say? Um, yes. How do you how do you make that kind of that system more fluid? Where you clearly have talented individuals, you want to give them opportunities, but there's some arcane system, which, you know, it's not that we're faulting it. It's, it's a system which you inherit. How do you try and make that more fluid? It, it's a great question. I, I think the first thing I would say is, um, and I'd say this in response to, the, to a marketing question as much as an organizational question, is you have to bring people on the journey. So this idea that somehow or another you just remove the barriers and, and people self-organize into highly successful autonomous groups is BS. What you do is you frame new frames that encourage people. And I'd almost, you know, given our Irish background, think about, you know, cattle mart in the south of the west of Ireland. And, you know, what you do is you bring the animals in in pens and they go from one to the next and from the next to the next. You know, there's a way of kind of curating and orchestrating journeys that what you do is you, you continue to open the aperture, you continue to lead and create space. And so I think inside organizations, the willingness to accept making a mistake is one of that, those fundamental building blocks. Most of the old models punish uh, mistakes mm. and actually didn't acknowledge that the, a lack of appetite for error had reduced the upside of performance. Mm -hmm. Because the truth is, if you, you know, it's a bit like buying an insurance policy or you know, the beta of a stock in the stock market is, you know, there's a, there's a reference there for, you know, the bigger the risk you take, the higher the upside and the higher the downside. If you, if you militate against 
downside, by definition, you're also reducing and capping the amount of upside. So I think that willingness to have a wider range of outcomes is an essential ingredient to you know, curating that journey of change. If you don't have an appetite for risk-taking and for failure, then none of these meritocracy models can work. So that's, I think, is the first thing for me. I think the second thing is the way we train and develop uh, people, because it's about team. Because team inside an organization, if it's if it's really well developed, means that Tuesday's problem has a different orchestration and 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 hierarchy to Wednesday's problem. So you're not actually creating a an unstructured organization. You're creating multiple flexible and agile structures that match themselves to the specific situations. So you're not managing chaos. You're managing much more flexible order within an organization. So I think those two frames, the appetite for risk and this recognition that what you're creating is um, a highly customizable, agile framing of structure can allow you to adapt very quickly to the situation you're in and still allow for people to have that choice uh, and that flexibility about how they contribute. I must say it's a very progressive outlook and it's it's one that we don't hear very often. Um, and I'm curious, you know, what wh- what do you expose yourself to to kind of maintain? You mentioned that you're deeply curious. Are there types of industries or leaders or or kind of sectors, whatever things that you expose yourself to, to try and broaden your perspectives and your horizons so that you can kind of maintain these progressive views and outlooks? A surprising answer. Uh, My reference in a lot of this is sport and particularly team sport. Um, And and let me start at the kind of the bottom of the pyramid. Um, I'm a huge uh, rugby fan, massive rugby fan. Um, Tell me about anything in our society, in our business and other structures that is as genuinely diverse as rugby. So I'll, I'll take my school environment. The short, fat guy, there's a role which he is prime position for. The skinny uh, kid, perfect role for them. And everything in between. Yeah, It's the most inclusive by definition. And guess what? The fat guy wants there to be a skinny guy on the, on the team. On the, the, the short team. guy wants yeah. the tall guy. You know, all of those things. So there's there's... That for me is the ultimate, and I'm not saying rugby is perfect, but at the basic essence of it in amateur rugby in school, it's a complete meritocracy. It's completely open. It's matching talent to opportunity. Can I have two tall guys? Can I have two really fast, skinny guys that can run around the outsides? Can I get a guy at the back that has a big boot, can kick at 30 yards? All of those things. So I think about team, I think about structure, I think about organization, and I think about um sport. Take American football. Um, and you may or may not love it, but I'm getting to, to learn more about it now. There are 51 people on the roster and there are, I think it's 12 on the on the field at any one time. I may even have got that bit wrong. But why? Because it's special teams. And this idea that offense, one team, as soon as your offense is over, you lose possession, defense comes on. You have your special teams that do kicking, punting, other things. So there's lots of examples in sport where they've much more quickly evolved themselves to this idea of um, the power of we is always greater than the power of me. It's the squad system. So on the whole topic of being adaptive and leadership and also matching opportunities with talent, I know that empowering the youth is something that you've been strongly involved in, not just in your role at Verizon, but when you were at O2 as well. Why why is that something that's that speaks so deeply to you? I know you still have that 15-year-old inside of you, so maybe that's a part of it, but what is it that you, is connects to that? The thing that uh, really influenced me there and probably crystallized a more tangible and explicit focus in this area <clears throat> was that I mentioned before that I took over as a CEO, my first ever CEO gig on the 1st of January, 2008. And the economy went to hell in a handcart. Um, The impact of that, just to remind people who may have forgotten some of the statistics, uh, was that at the worst point three years later, um, more than 50% of young people in Spain were unemployed. 20% of young people 
in the UK were unemployed. 43% of young people in Greece were unemployed. Now, we all know, if I hadn't set the conversation up with that insight, we all know we would say that the skills, capabilities, and talent that we see in this generation and the last generation are much more advanced than the equivalent skills and talents that we all had, certainly of my generation when we left school or university. And the best way of saying that, it's not solely digital literacy, but digital literacy is a part of it. So let me give you the other data point. Um, the UK refers to uh, a group called NEETS, which is not in employment education or training. And it's basically people under the age of 25 who are not in employment education and training. And as well as there being uh, <clears throat> the data point I made of over 20% of young people unemployed, the second data point was the level of digital literacy and digital competency among those NEETS was significantly higher than the average level of digital literacy and competency inside the workforce. Third data point, and we did research at the time when I was the CEO, we um, researched major companies all across the UK and said, do you have the digital skills you need inside your organization? Yes or no? Do you intend to develop more and recruit more digital skills into your organization? And the answer to all of them were yes and yes. Then the follow-on question, what school leaver entry uh, programs do you have for your company? And about 60% of people said none. So there we are. That's framing the context. So what I did is I sharpened up my general point about talent and opportunity and said, here we are. We have highly talented, highly skilled people who aren't in the workplace, who have a skill that's in deficit in the workplace. We went on and did further research and we identified that if the level of digital competency in the British uh, workforce was where it could be, that it was going to generate an additional 1.3 or 1.5 billion in economic value every single year. So maybe it's the accountant in me, but it's kind of blindingly obvious, match the talent to the opportunity. So I then went and I said, I would commit 20% of my time to youth employment and youth engagement matters. So I sat on the Sector Skills Council that talked about redefining the curriculum in school and university to make sure that more of what was being taught in school was relevant to employers when people left school or left university. We built a program called Think Big for People and Planet, which actually went out and worked with 65 youth agencies all across the United Kingdom to help them to meet young people who had an idea of something wanted to do and to enable and support them, not to preach to them or teach them, but to empower them so that they could be part of the solution that was required in their local environment, local community. And then I got to know a global organization called One Young World, which was founded by two very good uh, friends of mine, Kate Robertson and David Jones, who at the time were the co-chairs of Havas Media Group. And they had identified the fact that this was a worldwide phenomenon, that there were lots of very capable, talented people, but society didn't assume that they were leaders in this 18 to 30 age group, and to a large extent, didn't actually facilitate or empower them to take action and solve problems in their own uh, environments. And so there was this idea of they were almost in waiting to be allowed in to be part of the solution. And I take the view that people of my age and generation, what we tend to do is think about doing well and then doing good. People of your generation and people of my daughter's generation see doing well and doing good as two sides of the one coin. They don't see them as sequential things. They see them as essential components of who they are. So we have this massive opportunity that two generations can be working together. A young generation who much better sees the challenges that exist in society, but is willing to stand up and be part of the solution. And a generation who are maybe older and hopefully a little bit wiser now, who really keen to make a contribution that's meaningful. If we get two generations working on the problem at the same time and harness the brightest talent on the planet, then we can be very, very positive about the sort of outcomes we can achieve and the change that we can support. And that, in essence, is what One Young World's philosophy is. So from the, 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 the very kernels of the idea, 
as a CEO in O2 to the environment of unemployment, to doing some research, to building some programs, and then seeing that this wasn't just a UK issue, it was a global issue. That's been kind of that journey uh, for me. Yeah. There's so much we could talk about, you know. I think there's it's a pity, it's a pity we only have this window. Maybe we'll have to we haven't done a part two yet, but we might have to introduce it. <laughs> How are you doing right now, you know, with with this with this moment um where you you have to be adaptive. You have to stay kind of aware and fresh and uh not draw too many expectations of of what's happening. One of the things that I think hopefully people uh watching or, or listening will be aware is I, I'm blessed with really robust mental health. Uh, it's always been the case I've been a consistently glass half full, but I'm acutely aware that that's not the reality for, for so many uh, people. So one of the things I've been really uh, focused on is, is making sure that that health and well-being isn't just defined as avoid catching COVID. Uh, health and well-being is a much more fundamental question for people now because everybody's cheese to use one of the uh, you know kind of business management books that I have read is who moved my cheese everybody's cheese has been moved that's the reality whether you're the CEO and you've been you know working from home for 13 weeks I mean I joke I haven't worn long trousers in 13 weeks you know how many CEOs can say that you know um, but everybody's cheese has been moved so I, I do think that doubling down and focus on the health and well-being, of, of people broadly, and, and one of the things I've been I've been doing, and I, and I say it because it enriches me, but hopefully it also is others. Is I've been focused really on the personal engagements, the personal relationships. You know, you'll you'll have a sense. I you know I'm a gregarious individual naturally, and therefore you might think 13 weeks in lockdown has been terrible. But actually, I've adopted the new medium, which of course is video conferencing and video calling. And I'm now talking to more people than I have done for years because I'm being quite, you know, it's the accountant to me. I'm being purposeful uh, and focused on reaching out, engaging back with people who I worked with 10 years ago, five years ago, people who are friends, people in the organization who I don't bump into in the normal course who I've been reaching out to. And really, it's as simple as, hi, just thinking about you, wanted to say hello, and I can tell you the number of times off the back of that that somebody has said, thank you so much for reaching out. I'd love to catch up. Let's do a Zoom. Let's do a Blue Jeans. Let's catch, catch up. And then, which would never have happened in this kind of artificial uh, separation between work and home, on at least three occasions in the last 10 days, after a conversation, somebody has said is, why don't we set up something for the weekend and have our other halves uh, join? I think that's fantastic. So... The kind of response is, thank you for asking, and I'm uh, pleased to say that I'm in, in rude good health, but I'm acutely conscious that this is an environment in which you can't be passive in the context of health and well-being, particularly uh, mental health. So I would say to anyone who's, who's listening, uh, watching, is um, have a think about what's the role that you are playing at the moment as being the, the ally for the people around you. And that ally might be social justice in an environment where you know, the black community in the US is uh, regaining its voice to express the outrage that it justifiably has in the situations that we find ourselves in. But guess what? Embedded racism isn't, isn't simply an issue in the United States of America. You know, um, other people that you want to reach out to and ask those conversations about how they're feeling, how they're, how inclusive the environment they're in, or as I say, the health and health and well-being. So I think it's an opportunity for all of us to to um, step out of our comfort zone and engage in some of the courageous conversations that maybe we know we should have but haven't otherwise felt comfortable to have. I think that's a powerful soliloquy and a wonderful note to finish this on. Thanks for your time and your openness and, and coming and sharing this with us. And for, for people who want to interact with you, there's there's a capacity to do so. I know you're quite present on social media. You write some wonderful articles on LinkedIn. How, how can people interact with you and get in touch? Oh, oh please. You know, the best place to, to catch me is uh, is via LinkedIn. And please, if you, if you want to reach out, if you want to share 
on it. Just say, you know, I saw you on the podcast or, or listened to you or I was talking to, to Patrick or Mary McKenna or whatever. Just the, the introduction, even if it's the one-liner uh, that helps. And, and you know, I'm, I'm always happy to. What I try to do is if I think I have something that's interesting more broadly, I try to share it. And hopefully you'll see in my LinkedIn posts, they tend to be, uh, it's not a marketing program for Verizon. It's about stuff that I think is important in the context of the of the, the narrative, whatever that be, social, economic, whatever it, it, it may be. Uh, I uh, would be very happy to uh, engage in conversation because we'll finish where I started. Uh, I'm a 15-year-old curious kid and I never stopped being interested in learning more. And I'm sure there's a ton of people out there who have some fabulous things that they can share with me and the wider community that will make uh, mine a richer uh, experience as well. So look forward to engaging. Yeah, and I can say to anybody who, who takes that on, don't be daunted. He's got a lot of followers, but he does respond. I reached out on LinkedIn and that's how this conversation was facilitated. So um, thank you. Thanks for being with us. And um, I, I think we'll have to do another episode. I think there's no alternative. And can I just say thank you for what you do as well, Patrick, because this idea of creating a context for conversation is something that's opening up. I'll tell you in the 10 seconds is I was lucky enough to carry the Olympic torch in uh, in London when, when uh, London hosted the Olympics. And then the, the anecdote I tell to everybody is the truth of the Olympic torch is it's a single flame carried and passed from person to person. And the work that Patrick does is an opportunity for us to take that flame and wherever that conversation may take us, but to pass it as an authentic one to pass on to another and enrich a lot of lives uh, as a result. So thank you for what you do as well. Well, cheers, Ronan. Thanks for that. What a fantastic conversation. It really could have extended on for so much longer. I have a feeling that we're going to be welcoming Ronan back for a second episode to continue and expand on the conversation that we had in this episode. So I want to thank Ronan deeply for joining me on today's show and giving us his time. And I also want to thank you for listening to today's show. If you have any suggestions, please reach out to hello at digitalirish.com. We'd love to hear from you, whether it's feedback from the show or suggestions of potential guests, or we just want to hear from different people in where you're at and how you're dealing with the coronavirus, or if you want to share an interesting business that you may have developed or creative ideas that maybe we could feature on the podcast. We're very open to hearing from you and engaging with different people in the community. This, after all, is all about sharing the global landscape of Irish innovation, and we want to connect with anybody around the world who is Irish and innovating in any way, shape or form. If you want to learn more about the Digital Irish, you can visit digitalirish.com or message us on social with hashtag digitalirish. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe and review the show. It really helps us in climbing up the rankings. And you can also find the show on Spotify, Google Podcasts and all other major podcasting platforms. I would like to thank Kieran Kay and Matt Stewart from the Full English Post for producing this episode. I'm Patrick McAndrew and you've been listening to the Digital Irish Podcast.